0: to 1st Timothy chapter 2 if you're using a pew Bible this morning you'll find that on page 991 Timothy chapter 2 we're gonna read the first eight verses For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have the great privilege of coming before you in prayer. Lord, offering our supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings to you. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time. We pray for our brother Kurt as he comes to lead us in teaching your word. We pray that our ears would be unstopped and our hearts would be softened, that your spirit would move in us to show us those parts of our lives that we dare not look. We thank you for your word. Let it pierce our hearts. We do thank you in Jesus' name.
1: Well, Anne made me cry, then the singing made me cry, now I'm going to tell you a story about my grandpa, so we may be in real trouble here, we'll, we'll see how this goes. would invite you to, uh, if you've closed your Bible, to open them again to the book of First Timothy chapter 2. Uh, earlier this year, we were engaged in a study uh, that we titled, uh, The Praying Church. And you'll recall that early in this calendar year, we missed on gathering a couple of times because of some winter weather. And so we had to shorten that series. Uh, Pastor Toby finished a series last week, and he will begin a new one next week. So we had this uh, standalone week, and uh, it seemed good to revisit one of the texts that we weren't able to get to earlier this year. I brought two Bibles up here with me this morning. Uh, This is one that I was given in 1982. Uh, This was a gift to me from my grandparents. Uh, My grandfather, Pop, was a a godly man. He came to faith in Jesus Christ as an adult, and his conversion uh, cast a, a strong influence over my family now for four generations. I thought about him this week, and I opened up this Bible and found these words written in the front. He writes, Kurt, this is a beautiful book. I hope you will read and enjoy it. There's a wondrous story in its pages if we study and understand its real meaning. 2 Timothy 2.15, Pop. I enjoyed greatly my relationship with my grandfather. They used to call me Pop Shadow. I used to follow him around the yard and everything that he was doing. When I was a little boy, I would wear one of his full-size caps on my little bitty head, and I would follow him wherever he went and do whatever he did. I was just getting into uh, adult life when my grandfather began his battle with memory loss and when he then went home to be with the Lord. So it is true that many of the things that I have faced in adult life, although I would have loved to have talked to Pop about them, uh, I'd never had that opportunity. And it is still true sometimes when some difficult things come up in my life that I think, boy, it would be great to talk with Pop about this. Having a mentor in your life, having someone who is a few years ahead of you in the walk of life, someone who is a few years ahead of you in this walk of faith and following Jesus, who is willing to take the time to speak truth in your life, that is of immense value. It's of immense value for any of us. It's certainly of immense value in the life of a pastor. I have two older brothers, both of whom are, are vocational pastors. I, I joked with my dad many times, that makes me the black sheep of the family. <laughs> my, there's a big gauge gap between each of us. There's a seven-year gap. And my oldest brother, Dave, had been in vocational ministry for several years when my brother, Steve, entered vocational ministry. And Dave, who's a songwriter, wrote a song for his little brother who was embarking on this journey. And the words go like this. I'm wondering what there is to say to help you now, my brother, as you walk your way. The work is great and the laborers few. When you're unsure, please let these words take care of you. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. Keep your mind in the word. Keep your ears ever listening. Let the Spirit's voice be heard. Keep your tongue ever praising and keep your heart bowed in fear. Keep your feet to the narrow path and keep Jesus ever near. Godly words, much practical wisdom in those words, and a rare thing for a pastor to have a pastor who's a little further down this walk of life, a little further down this walk of faith, take the time to speak truth into their lives and to walk with them and invest with them. And I offer all of that as we get started this morning, because as we open the scriptures to the book of 1 Timothy, this is what we're entering The author of this book, the human author writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the Apostle Paul. And we have here an aging Apostle Paul. And he is writing this letter to a young pastor, Timothy, who is pastoring a church in the city called Ephesus. And this is not just a random letter to someone that Paul didn't know. This is a young man who has done an awful lot of life and ministry with Paul. They have traveled together. They have ministered together. Paul knows this young man. He has mentored this young man. And he writes to him this letter to say, Timothy, as you pastor this church in Ephesus, here are the things that you need to know. This is a book about how to do church. This is a book from the apostle to this young pastor to say, here is how you should do church. This is what it should look like when you gather together. These are the things that should happen in your worship service. These are the things that should happen as you interact with one another. There is much written, there are plenty of books at the bookstore, plenty of books you can find at Christian book distrib- distributors about how to do church. I wanna invite you to start here in the book of First Timothy because this book speaks specifically to what we should do as we all gather together in the local church. That being the premise then of the book, it's very interesting to me that after we get out of chapter one, which is very personal in its tone, words of introduction, dealing with a couple of specific things with Timothy, when Paul really gets to the heart of the matter, when he pivots to the topic at hand in chapter two, He says then, under this heading of what should we do when we gather together, what should church look like? He begins like this. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is where he chooses to begin. Something to look for when you're studying the scriptures, when you're studying a set of verses that are together like these eight verses, are repeated words and repeated themes. And it struck me as I looked at these eight verses, you see how verse 1 ends, that we would pray like this for all people. And then you get down to the end of verse 3, speaking of God, our Savior, who desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So we are to pray for all people, and God desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then look down with me in verse 6, speaking of Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So there is this theme woven into these eight verses. We are to pray for all people because God desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. So if I were to try to summarize for you in one sentence what we're talking about here this morning, I would do it like this. Prayer for the salvation of all people is of first importance for the church. Prayer for the salvation of all people is of first importance for the church. So that is the banner that we will ride out under this morning as we explore these eight verses. And let's begin with the topic of the priority of prayer. Look with me again at verse one, it reads like this. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. He begins to emphasize the priority of this topic by saying, first of all, By beginning here. This book, if we were to take the time to survey the whole book, will cover topics like this. How should men and women conduct themselves within the local fellowship? What are the qualifications for elders and deacons? What is the importance of sound doctrine and faithful teaching? What is the importance of true godliness? What is the the proper way for different age groups within your fellowship to interact with one another? All of that will be covered. All of that of profound importance in the life of the church. But the apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with all of those things in view, begins here. First of all, I urge you to pray and to pray in this manner. The priority of prayer here is emphasized also by the use of four descriptive words. You notice he doesn't just say pray. He could have done that, but he says, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. If you had been uh, at Walmart on February 14th of this particular calendar year, you would have been witness to a very pathetic scene. If you had found your way to the Hallmark Isle, you would have seen this pitiful group of men that had gathered at the last possible moment on Valentine's Day on their way home from work, elbowing one another to get out of the way, working towards the last few remaining Valentine's Day cards that were on the shelf. And I feel very comfortable saying that was a pitiful scene and a pathetic group of men because I was chief amongst them, (laughs) fighting my way through, trying to find the last of the Valentine's Day cards to bring home to my loving bride. You know what's true of those Valentine's Day cards, even the last few remnants that are left at 530 on February 14th, that you don't just open them up and read the words, I love you. Those might be the cards that are left. That's just not typically how they they read, right? They don't just say that. You open them up and they say, I love you and I adore you and I I cherish you and I, I treasure our time together. All of that could be summarized just fine under the the heading of I love you, but the cards don't read like that because they want to emphasize the point. We're going to emphasize the point by repeating these things and saying them in different ways. It's a way to bring priority. It's a way to show the importance of what's being said. So the apostle emphasizes the priority of prayer here, both by saying, first of all, and then by using all of these words, supplications is praying for present needs in someone's life. Prayers is a a general calling out to God on behalf of someone. Intercessions, praying with empathy and sympathy. And thanksgivings, praying with gratitude and appreciation for those that you are praying for. Paul uses all of these words, shows us all of these different facets of prayer to emphasize the point that it is of utmost importance. He urges us to pray like this on behalf of all men. So I think the apostle is clear here about the priority of prayer. Let's turn our attention then to the people that we are to pray for. And there are two things we need to explore here together. He says, he urges all of this, this type of prayer to be made for all people. So I work through this text myself, this phrase, these couple of words cause me to think, who do I pray for? Here's my answer, maybe similar to yours. I pray for myself, I pray for my family, my wife and my children, I pray for a close circle of friends, I pray for you, the church family that gathers here. If you were to hear my prayers, if you were to walk through my prayers, that is a pretty typical list of the people that I pray for. The call here is much broader than that. The apostle, I don't think, would rebuke me for that. I think he would say, good, continue that. By all means, continue that. All of that is important, but your circle is too small. The things that you're praying about, the people that you're praying for, it's too small. It is too limited in scope. I wanna urge you here to pray for all people. There are plenty of examples in the scripture of followers of God. Praying for large groups of people, people beyond their immediate sphere of knowledge, their immediate sphere of influence. Let's look at a few of these together. This is Moses in Numbers chapter 14, verse 19, praying on behalf of the people of Israel. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, praying for the entire nation. And in typical fashion of the examples that we see in scripture, praying for their salvation and praying that God would forgive their sins. I think in the, the most interesting example of these is in Jeremiah seven sixteen. This is God speaking. This is not a prayer. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. And he says this to Jeremiah. Maybe I would say it like this. He has to say this to Jeremiah. As for you... Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede intercede with me for I will not hear you. God is about to bring his judgment on the nation and he steps into Jeremiah's life and he says, do not pray for these people. You know what you read there between the lines? Jeremiah was in the habit of praying for his people, praying for the entire nation, praying that God would have mercy on them, praying that God would would be patient with them, praying that God would pour out grace on them to the point it was such a pattern in his life that God actually has to step in and say, I want you to stop that because judgment is about to fall. Man, I wish that was true of me. Look at this last example from the New Testament. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them for his entire nation is that they might be saved. Prayer for all people. Why would the Apostle begin here? When you read these letters in the New Testament that the Apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write to these churches, never think this is just a random collection of topics, just what happened to be on their mind this day. It's their blog, and this just happened to be on my mind. They're addressing specific things in specific congregations. And as we study what was going on at the church in Ephesus, there was uh, some exclusivism that was coming to be true of that congregation. In that time, it is likely that a couple of things had crept in. There was probably a group of uh, what they would call Judaizers, who had said, you know what, it's great that we've all kind of gathered together around Christ, but the gospel is really kind of for this inner circle of us. It's for those of us who have accepted the gospel of Christ and still keep the law of Moses. And we're kind of the inner circle, and we're really not too concerned about anybody but us. And maybe another subset, they would later come to be called the Gnostics, who would say, you know what, it's really cool that you guys have all gathered together here around this thing we call the gospel. That's kind of elementary school kind of knowledge. There's some secret knowledge that God has revealed to us. And we're kind of in the inner circle. We're kind of the cool kids. And we're really not too concerned about the rest of you that are still in elementary school because you need to be in this secret inner circle with us. And we hope you get there someday. This exclusivism that had set in that said, you know what, we're really only going to be concerned about this little subset. We're really only going to be concerned about our holy huddle. And Godspeed to the rest of you. Hope it works out okay. That's what he's confronting here. This is not a general comment. This is Paul saying, no. I'm going to urge you to pray in a specific way for all people. I think we have to ask ourselves, who do we pray for? And maybe just to be a little more pointed in my life and in yours, who who will we not pray for? I have a friend that uh, ministers in Southern India in his churches today, uh, small gatherings of believers, very rare there for uh, a church to be bigger than 100 people. And they will gather in some very simple buildings. Most of them have dirt floors. His people, by custom, will take their shoes off before they enter that building with dirt floors in recognition of what they're about to do is holy. Most of them that come in will be seated on the dirt floor. The few chairs that are in the room are for the elderly and the infirmed that come among them. And they will worship today, singing some songs that would sound foreign to us. Sam told me once, We don't have instruments, but we clap. Is that contemporary or traditional? I didn't know how to answer that. (laughs) They will worship in a way that would seem foreign to us. They will sing songs that we don't know, and the gospel will be proclaimed, and the church there will be edified. On the other side of the planet, in Zulu country in South Africa, I pray to God that the small church that we visited there years ago meets there again today, on a hill in Zulu country where they would gather together the women and children from that village because there were very few men in the village and those that were there had not yet embraced the gospel. So that church gathers the women and children in this simple little building, whereas the service began and Stephen began to preach. One of us had to stand in the back and hold the doors closed so that the wind didn't blow the men and they sang songs we didn't know. And It was a strange gathering with no men present, but the gospel was proclaimed and God was glorified in what they did. Several of us years ago were in a place called Belize and in the village of Doublehead Cabbage, for real, Doublehead Cabbage, at Doublehead Cabbage Baptist Church. Today, Pastor Densdale will stand up and proclaim the word of God to a people who look different than us and act different than us and have traditions different than us. And God's name will be glorified there. In northern India, Isaac Shaw will minister. In Chile, the gospel of Christ will be proclaimed. In Guatemala, through the ministry of feeding centers, people who don't look like us or act like us or have the same traditions that we have, we will gather together today and worship God, and God will be glorified. And those believers in all of those places that are so foreign to us will take the light of the gospel into the darkness of their community. And you know what? We need to pray for them. Because God desires that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Not just those that look like us and sound like us and embrace the traditions that we embrace and gather in buildings that look like our buildings and sing songs that we hear on k right? All people, God desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. And the call here from the apostle Paul, the minister to the Gentiles, by the way, that'd be us, a strange and foreign people with strange traditions that most of them didn't like very well. The call is that we would pray for all, because God desires that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all. Under this heading of who we should pray for, there is what at first reading seems like an unexpected term or turn. Here, look what happens next. I'm going to read verse one again. We'll read verse two. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. That's the only specific example we get here. Pray for all people, and pray for kings and those who are in high positions. Why would he single them out? I read a lot of commentary about this. I think there's truth in in a lot of what is written. Some of what is said is, you know what, that's an example of a people group that is at a personal level, unknown and unknowable to most of us. We might know their names. It's very unlikely that we'll ever have a cup of coffee with them, very unlikely that we'll ever have them in our our homes, they're inaccessible to us and that this is an example of praying for those outside of our circle. And I'm good with that and I'm fine with that and I think that that's okay. I think we need to zoom into the first century here, though, and be specific and think about how jarring this would have been to that church in Ephesus, because when the call is to pray for the king, the call is to pray for the emperor, and the emperor, speaking freely, was a murderous lunatic named Nero. There is no distinction here in what Paul says. Paul does not say pray for kings and those in authority who are good people and who rule justly. There is no loophole that says don't pray for those who are cruel and ungodly. The call is to pray for kings and all those who are in authority. And in the flow of these verses, I think the reason for that is clear. And I think Jesus would step in here and say, let me offer a little more commentary. It's nothing for you to pray for your inner circle, nothing to write home about. I want you to pray for your enemies, and I want you to pray for those who persecute you. So in this, under this banner of praying for all people and not just praying for our little holy huddle, let me offer this jarring, specific example. I want you to pray for Nero. Because God desires that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And God gave himself as a ransom for all, even for the emperor. This instruction here is not unique in scripture. Here's some other examples. Another one from Paul in Romans 13, verse 1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why is that? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter would write to this same topic in 1 Peter two seventeen. Honor everyone. We're with you, Peter. Love the brotherhood. Amen, brother. Fear God. Hallelujah. Honor the emperor. We can read quickly past those words, but we shouldn't. He is stretching them here. He is confronting them here. And brothers and sisters, we are not in the first century, but we are sitting here approaching an election cycle. And I don't know or in this context, in this forum, care what side of the political aisle you find yourself on. Someone's going to get elected. And it may be somebody you're excited about. And it may be somebody that you're not excited about. In the reality of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, I say to you on the authority of God's Word that whoever wins that, they are there because God has placed them for His purposes into that position of authority. And that the call in the life of the church is that we would honor those in authority because God has placed them there and that we would pray for them, certainly that they would rule justly, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute, but that we would pray for them in the flow of 1 Timothy 2, 1-8, that they might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I'm gonna go from preaching to meddling here for just a minute. If gathered here this morning was a group of uh, teenagers and I was addressing a different topic altogether and I said to those teenagers, you are kidding yourselves, it is a lie of the enemy. If you think you can take into your mind, you can take into your, your mind on a regular basis, music and media that celebrates things that God has condemned that flies in the face of the things that God has called us to. You're kidding yourself. That is a lie of the enemy. You can't listen to music and media that celebrates violence, that celebrates sexual immorality, that celebrates all of these things and say, you know what, that really doesn't affect me. It's not going to bother me at all. It won't affect my walk with Christ. It will. And we are called to meditate on things that are true and right and godly. And if I were addressing this morning in a different forum, a group of teenagers, and I said in regards to the media that they allow into their hearts and minds, you need to be sure that these things are godly and that they are things you should be meditating on, things that you should be pursuing. And if they're not, you need to quit and you need to repent. From a crowd like this one, I would probably get a hearty amen. And you'd say, go get those teenagers, Kurt, right? So can we just pivot and look in the mirror, friends? What did we just read? Regarding kings and all those who are in positions of authority, we are to honor them because God has placed them into positions of authority. We are to pray for them that they would rule in a godly way and that they would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, if you are sitting here this morning, especially in an election cycle, and you are filling your minds with media that regularly slanders and tears apart and shreds these people, that destroys them, and celebrates the destruction of them. If you're listening to to media on the radio and on television that does that to these people that God has placed into positions of authority and you're saying, you know what, but it doesn't affect me. It is a lie of the enemy. And we are meditating on things that fly in the face of what God has told us plainly, how we are to interact with kings and those who are in positions of authority. We are to honor them. We are to pray for them. And if you are entertaining other things, friends, I call on you this morning to repent. Because we are called to pray for these people, pray that they would rule in a godly way and pray for their salvation. The priority of prayer, the people that we pray for, and then the purpose in praying. Let's pick up in verse 2, we're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There is this practical outworking of praying for kings and all those who are in positions of authority. And that practical outworking looks like freedom from persecution so that we can live quiet and godly lives out in the open. So that we can live quiet and godly lives out in the open so that men might see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. So that we might live godly lives out in the open so that our proclamation of the gospel would not be hindered. So we pray in this way for freedom from persecution, but we pray in this way ultimately for the redemption of the world. Let's start again in verse 3. This is good. What is good? Praying like this is good. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Friends, we pray in this way for all people, for all those who are in positions of authority, for those that are outside of our little holy huddle in our circle of immediate knowledge. We pray for all people all over the world so that they might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We, as we gather here as a congregation on Gray Road, it should be typical of us that we are praying for the redemption of the world. In verses seven and eight, he turns to the practice of prayer, begins to give some practical examples. He says, for this, this proclamation of the gospel, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher to the Gentiles, a people group they wouldn't have been very excited about and left to themselves in faith and in truth. And then he says this, I desire that in every place, the men should pray. In every place that the men should pray. This is instruction about what the church is to do when we gather together. I want to submit to you that men here is not used in a generic sense. If we were to continue reading, we would see some specific instruction to the women. So the call is this. When we come together, men, the call on us is that we would lead in praying like this praying for the salvation of all. And you know what? That kind of corporate activity is going to grow out of our private activity because the worship that we do in private and in our home should inform what we do here. So the call, men, is that we would lead in this. Lead in your homes. Lead when you come together in this fellowship. Lead as God provides the opportunity for some of us to be in front of Sunday school classes and in front of the congregation. Lead in this, praying for the salvation of all men. He says this, I desire that in every place the men should pray. Lifting holy hands. That we should pray lifting holy hands. I think the overall instruction here has much more to do with the holiness than the specific posture. But the idea is this. We should have our hearts and minds right before God. Why? Because it is of utmost importance that we pray like this. It is of utmost importance that we pray like this. And men, if our hearts and minds are not right, our prayers for the salvation of all men will be hindered. And Paul would say, get your hearts and minds right. Men, get your lives holy. Get your lives right so that you can pray earnestly and with power in this way. desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Why would he say that without anger or quarreling? Because in many places, the scripture is clear that if there is conflict among us, If our horizontal relationships are not right, then it hinders the vertical relationship with God. And it is all under this banner of get your individual lives right and make sure things are right between you and the congregation so that you can pray earnestly for the salvation of all people because God desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. I want to take you back to the statement that we began with an attempt to summarize where we have been this morning. Prayer for the salvation of all people is of first importance for the church. And let me ask you again a question that I asked you in the beginning. Who do you pray for? Or maybe as informed by this passage, who should we pray for? And friends, I want to invite you and I want to challenge you and challenge myself that we would expand our prayer beyond those that are part of our holy huddle, beyond those that are in our immediate sphere of influence, and that God, by His Spirit, would begin to align our hearts and our prayers to His, and that we would pray that all would come to a knowledge of the truth. I want to do this this morning. I want to let the apostle have the last word. So if your Bibles are closed, I want to invite you to open them again to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read this text again. And here's what I want to do. I want to have just a couple of minutes of silence. And in that couple of minutes of silence, I want to invite you to do this. I want to invite you to silently pray right where you are for some of those that are outside of your normal prayer list. I want you to pray as you sit there for those scattered around the world who look a lot different than us and act a lot different than us and sound a lot different than us, but desperately need the light of the gospel. I wanna give you an opportunity to obey the call of scripture here as the apostle urges us to pray like this. So I'm going to read these verses I'm going to invite you to pray silently for a couple of minutes, and then I'll close us in prayer. Hear these words. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let me invite you to a brief season of prayer here, and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we often say as we gather here that our hearts desire is that you would conform us into the image of your Son and that you would change us by your Word. And, Father, the call of this passage is clear in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would align our hearts with yours, that we would be overwhelmed with a desire that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And, Father, we are urged here to pray for all people. And so I pray this morning, Father, beyond... Uh, our church family, beyond our our doors, beyond our our family and friends, Father, who we continue to pray for and, and to pray for earnestly, Father, but beyond them, all around the south side of Indianapolis are people that we don't know who have never heard the truth of the gospel. All around our nation are people that we don't know who have never heard the truth of the gospel. Father, men and women that you have created in your image sit in places of power and authority in this nation. And Father, they, they have never encountered the gospel. They have never embraced the gospel. Father, in South Africa this morning and in North Africa, in South India and in Northern India, in Guatemala and in Chile, Father, all over the planet are your people created in your image. And your desire is that they would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Father, align our desires with yours. May it be true of us as individuals. May it be true of us as a congregation that our hearts are aligned with yours and that we fervently desire, Father, that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Father, change us. Please change us. Father, please do what you need to do in the life of this congregation the changes, that we might desire that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth because Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. We pray these things in the matchless name of our Savior Jesus, amen. Thank you, friends, you're dismissed.